do not choose to ignore this, but rather choose to accept it. Express faith towards the fact that God's grace is triumphant. You make a decision to believe it and you go forward rejoicing. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of God's Lavish Grace, a study in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 5 from Pastor Paul Twiss. Since 2 Kings is less preached on than many other parts of Scripture, we've invited Pastor Paul to join us on mic. So, Pastor, I admit that 2 Kings is not the first place in Scripture I'd visit to read about grace. It seems obscure. That's right. And Second Kings, especially in those early chapters, focuses less on the kings than it does on the prophetic ministry, especially of Elisha. Now, Elisha was a faithful man of God. And within the narrative that focuses on him, we read in chapter five a story about a pagan commander named Naaman and a little girl. She's a servant in Naaman's household and she spoke the truth to Naaman's wife. Now the girl is unnamed and her witness brings God's lavish grace into Naaman's life. He was healed of leprosy in a most unusual manner under the guidance of the prophet Elisha, whom he had apparently never met. Right, thanks pastor. It is an interesting study to see how many no-name intermediaries God used to pour out his grace upon Naaman. Here now, part two of God's lavish grace. We see not only is God's grace sovereign, but we see God's grace is surprising. God's grace is surprising. Read with me verses five through 12. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned 
and went away in a rage. So Naaman the leper, the great commander of the armies of Syria, he's sick. He can't be healed. He's experiencing God's grace in a sovereign way. God is working in the big, big decisions of his life, and he's working in the tiny decisions. And a source of hope has come from a little girl who he took from Israel. She said, go and see the leper. And Naaman responds, and he follows through on the plan. Now, the thing to note is that in these next few verses, Naaman is acting in accordance with the norm. He's, he's following the protocol of the day. Naaman's doing everything that would be expected of him. First off, he goes to the king. It's appropriate that he goes to his king. He doesn't just set off for Israel. He goes to his king, and he, he tells him the plan. The king agrees, and the king sends a letter to the king of Israel. Now, that's the norm. That's the way it would have been done. One king corresponds with another king, and it's right that the CEO of a company emails the CEO, and it's not right that the, the boss emails the secretary or the second in charge. So the king writes a letter to the king, and that's entirely appropriate. And the king also sends a gift, which is what normally happened. If one king was to entreat another, he would send a gift. Now, this gift is huge by anyone's standards. The king of Syria sends a huge gift, and all that communicates to us is that the king of Syria thought, well, if I send a gift big enough, then Naaman will be healed. If I send enough money, then that's the healing purchased. And to our surprise, at least to, to Naaman's surprise, the king rips his clothes. The king of Israel rips his clothes, and he says, I'm not God. He says, I can't do this. This is beyond me. What's with the letter and the money? I'm not someone who can heal leprosy. To Naaman's shock, the normal way of doing things is not going to work this time. The normal method, the normal protocol is out of the window. In fact, just to underline that, the king of Israel says, he's trying to stir up an argument with me. So crazy was it to the king of Israel that they would be suggesting that he heal him, that he receive a letter and money so that the prophet could heal him. So surprise number one is that this letter and this money, as is the normal way of doing things, won't work. Surprise number two is Naaman is sent to Elisha's house. We see that somehow, verse 8, Elisha hears about the king tearing his clothes. We don't know how, but that's just more evidence that God is working behind the scenes here. God is in this. And Elisha says, note carefully, Elisha says, verse 8, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, that's really important because we understand there Elisha's motives. Elisha wants Naaman to come. He's eager to heal Naaman. Why? Because he wants Naaman to know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now, we need to remember that the prophets are God's spokespeople. They're representatives of God. So as he said that he may know there's a, a prophet in Israel, it's as good as saying that he may know that there is a God in Israel, that there is the God in Israel. It's the message of 1 Kings and 2 Kings all the way through, that the people would know who God is, and so trust him, obey him, worship him. So Elisha says, come, let him experience the grace. Tell him to come to me. And so all of a sudden, we see in verse 9 that Naaman is now on his way to Elisha's house with his horses and his chariots and his full entourage, which is the last thing he expected to be doing. Surprise number two is that Naaman is on his way to Elisha's house. He thought he was going to the palace to see the king. He took his horses and his chariots, a huge entourage, all very impressive, and now he's being directed down some side street to see Elisha. We have no reason to think Elisha lived in a, in a palace. We have no reason to think Elisha was nearby to the king. He was just a prophet appointed by God. He wasn't connected with the royal family. So Naaman is turned away from the palace. 
He's sent down the side streets. He's knocking on the door saying, is, is this Elisha's house? Oh, no, down that street, second on the left, third house along. There's a humbling. There must be a humbling going on in Naaman's heart here. He thought he was off to see the king with a letter from his king and a huge gift. That's not going to work. And so surprise two, he's now off to find little old Elisha. Surprise number three is that Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. Elisha doesn't even come. I mean, this is, this is like the Queen of England coming up to your house. And you say to one of the kids, go outside, say hi to Liz, tell her I'm busy. I mean, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. And that's exactly what Elisha does do. Naaman must be so angry now. Those boils must be bursting everywhere. He was not expecting this. As he humbled himself to go and see Elisha, he thought the least this man can do is come out to meet him. But he won't even come out. And then surprise number four is the message. The messenger comes out and he says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. I mean, what kind of healing is that? To wash in the Jordan seven times. We see that Naaman the Gentile, don't forget that Naaman's a Gentile. Naaman the Gentile is used to magic. He's used to sorcery. He's used to mystic healers. He says in verse 11, I thought he was going to come out and wave his hand over me and I would be healed. That is Naaman's mindset. That is his norm. And God's grace is not operating at all in accordance with his plan. More than that, he says, wash in the Jordan. Well, Naaman hates this idea. He says, can't I go back home to Abana and Farpa? Now, just a little bit of background. Those rivers, those rivers that he suggests back in Damascus are like the Beverly Hills of rivers. They're crisp, they're clean, they're deep. He's used to them. That's his home turf. They feed a huge oasis in Damascus that all of antiquity would bathe in. That's where the important people go to bathe. He says, if I'm going to wash, let me go back there and wash, compared to the, the Van Nuys of rivers here. The, <laughs> I'm sorry if you live in Van Nuys. He says, the shallow, muddy Jordan. I have to wash, and I have to wash in the Jordan. What kind of plan is this? And he goes off in a rage. Surprise one is that the letter's not going to work. Surprise two is that he has to go and find Elisha for himself. Surprise three, Elisha's not coming out. Surprise four, wash in the Jordan. All of it to say that as God unveils his plan, as he continues to work God's grace in Naaman's life, we see that God's grace is surprising. God's grace is surprising. It doesn't work according to your plan. God's grace doesn't fit with your mindset. It challenges you. God's ways are not your ways. God's grace throughout the Bible is surprising. God's grace is the grace that tells Abraham to go up a mountain and lift a knife to his son. That's God's grace being worked out. God's grace is the grace that takes Joseph into captivity, left for dead by his brothers. That's God's grace being worked out. God's grace is the grace that takes his son straight to the cross. He's being expected by everyone. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're thinking that when he arrives, he will establish his reign. He'll bring about justice for the Israelites. And God says, my grace is sending him to the cross. And there he's going to die, beaten, mocked, scorned, naked, a criminal's death with criminals either side of him. That's God's grace. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like the way we think it does. A friend of mine says, if you want to make God laugh, you tell him all your plans. God is not 
your errand boy. He's not your errand boy. You see, when Naaman rejected the Jordan River, the point isn't so much that he didn't want to wash in this river versus this river. The point is that he needs to come to God on God's terms and not his terms. He needs to obey God in the way that God sets out his plan and not Naaman's plan. So God's grace is surprising. It will challenge you. It will offend you. It will break you and humble you. I was reading just this week about John Owen and John Bunyan. Um, I realized they were contemporaries. What I didn't appreciate is that they were good friends. John Owen was a man in high places. He had a lot of connections. He knew a lot of men in Parliament. John Bunyan, not so. And they lived at a time when there was a lot of persecution for preachers. And as such, John Bunyan was thrown into prison. John Bunyan was thrown into prison. John Owen somehow was not. And we, we think it's because of the connections he had and the friends he had. Well, then John Owen works the rest of his life to try and get John Bunyan out. He's doing all he can, speaking to all the people he knows in high places to release this man from prison. And as I read about this, I thought, you know, you can imagine something of the, the prayers that went up all through those years. John Owen was praying to God, would you please release Bunyan? Would you release Bunyan so that that man can preach the gospel again? But you see, what John Owen didn't see and what we now can see is God's surprising grace in that situation. All those years that John Bunyan was in prison, he was writing A Pilgrim's Progress. If he had not been in prison, we may not have that book today. It's a book which has been said the worth and importance of which can scarcely be comprehended. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is surprising, so take comfort. Every trial that you're going through, every trial that you experience, God is in it. God is in it. Things aren't going according to your plan. But that doesn't mean God's not there because his grace is surprising. Your life isn't going to go to plan. And all that shows is that God's grace is in it. The narrative moves on. We're getting close to a solution now. We can sense that this healing's coming close. And so the narrator turns the diamond of God's grace for us one last time. He turns the diamond of God's grace so that we can see not only is God's grace sovereign, not only is it surprising, but God's grace is triumphant. Verses 13 through 14. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman the leper, the Gentile leper, he's received God's grace in a sovereign way, in a surprising way. He's followed the plan. He's actually now going home in anger. We think that, that we've lost him now. But again, God's grace, working through his servants, they beseech him and say, Lord, Father, please, would you not listen to the prophet? Would you not listen to the prophet and do what the prophet said? This is God's spokesman. This is God speaking to you. Would you listen to him and do what he said? Naaman's heart is humbled. He washes and he's cleansed. He washes seven times in the Jordan and his leprosy is gone. It's gone. It's completely gone. Now, my son, my youngest son has had chicken pox this week. 
it really has been quite fitting. I've been studying Name in the Leper, and my son's had chickenpox. He was covered. And uh, Laura took him out on, I think it was Wednesday. He, he was no longer contagious, but she had to get out of the house. So he's, he's out there with all his spots. And she said, I could see people looking at my boy in horror. <laughs> and she said, I could just see my precious boy. But they're looking at him in horror. And then just over the last few days, those spots are, are beginning gradually to go. Very slowly, and we're nearly there, all the spots have gone. That is not what happened here. He dips himself seven times, and on the seventh time, he goes down, and he comes up, and it's all gone. It's just gone. There's no gradual healing, and there's no partial healing. His leprosy is gone. That strange disease that causes his fingers and his toes to fall off, which only God can heal and is beyond the healing of man, is now completely gone. And it shows us that God's grace is always triumphant. His grace always accomplishes exactly what it intends to accomplish, and his grace never fails. His grace is always at work in your life. It is never absent. It's there everywhere. It's sovereign. He makes no mistakes, although it may look like it to you. There are many surprises, and in everything, his grace is triumphant. Despite what you see, what you see of your life, you may think is failure after failure. God's grace is successful in everything in your life. Despite what the world tells you, the world's estimation of your life is failure. And yet God's grace means that your life is one success story after another. It is leading you on from one degree of glory to the next until you arrive at the shores of glory. And there you'll see your Savior and then you'll know. I think of of Josiah Grauman. Many of you know him. He's He's a pastor at the church. He works in Spanish ministry. He has a wonderful testimony. You need to listen to his testimony. It's online. You can look it up. And Josiah speaks at the end about when his wife gave birth at 14 weeks and they lost their first child. And he said, on that day when we lost the baby, my wife said to me, Josiah, when we get to heaven, will we understand why God took our baby? And Josiah says, not only will we understand But when we get there and we have an appreciation of the grace and the wisdom of God, we will look back and we will say, that was best. That was best. God's grace doesn't make mistakes. God's grace doesn't make mistakes in your life. All of your trials, your sins of the past, the sins of other people that are affecting your life right now, That's no mistake. God's grace is in it. It is always, always triumphant, such that the Bible calls you more than a conqueror. You are not called a conqueror by the Bible. You are called more than a conqueror, not because of who you are and not because of what you're doing, but because of God's triumphant grace that's at work in your life. This is God's grace. God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is surprising. And God's grace is triumphant. How should we respond? Turn with me to Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Jesus has come. He is the clearest manifestation of God's grace. He is full of grace, full of grace and truth. And the Pharisees are rejecting him. The Pharisees don't like what they see. They're experiencing God's surprising grace and they don't like it. They're rejecting him. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 
When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Then they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Friends, do not resist God's grace. Don't resist God's grace. Don't deny God's grace. Do not resent God's grace like the Pharisees did. If you are an unbeliever here today, if you've not experienced God's grace in a saving way, then stop resisting it. Stop denying it. Come and have God's grace. See that his grace has already been at work in your life such that you are here this morning. It is no accident that you're here, but rather you have come to hear about Naaman the leper and God's lavish grace. Don't deny it. There is a time coming very soon when you will not be able to accept God's grace. It will be too late. So come now and say yes to God's grace as he has made it available to you. As he killed his son on the cross, so God's grace is available. His triumphant grace, his sovereign grace, and his surprising grace at work in your life. And if you know it, if you are a believer and you are a child of God and you know the grace of God, then don't resist the grace of God in your life. Don't resent the grace of God in your life. You need to take hold of these truths. You need to make them your own. You need to think them through and meditate upon them. You need to take hold of the sovereign grace of God. You need to choose to believe it's a decision. It is not a feeling and it's not a whim that comes upon you. You must choose to believe that God's is sovereignly at work in every area of your life for your eternal good. That's a decision you make. You think through the sovereign grace of God, and therefore there is no no room for complaining. There is no room for grumbling for any of your circumstances. You cannot be lacking joy because you know that whatever it is you're facing, God's sovereign grace is at work in your life. You take hold of the fact that God's grace is surprising and you don't resent it. You accept the fact that your life will not play out according to your plan. You accept the fact that there will be many twists, many turns, many trials ahead. And you move forward, pressing on in Christ, rejoicing that God's grace is surprising, knowing that it is working out for you an eternal weight of glory. So that one day when you get there, you will look back and you will call every affliction momentary. Choose to believe in these things and you resound, you exalt, you enjoy and you rejoice in the triumphant grace of God. Do not choose to ignore this, but rather choose to accept it. Express faith towards the fact that God's grace is triumphant. You make a decision to believe it and you go forward rejoicing, rejoicing in his triumphant grace and all that it is doing in your life. This is the grace of God. The sovereign, surprising, and triumphant grace of God. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled by your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereign grace. We thank you for your surprising grace. And we thank you for your triumphant grace. I ask that you would work these things out in our hearts, that we would take a hold of them and choose to trust in them, so that you would get all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has shown us over the past two days grace upon not only Naaman, but upon others who helped him. Naaman wasn't looking to the one true God, but he was willing to follow the guidance of God's man, Elisha, to be healed. This is lavish grace, like the grace that brought many wanderers to Jesus. Now, while the Lord can take away physical ailments, Jesus Christ came into the world primarily 
to meet our greatest need to heal our souls from sin. Have you trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation? Our website has more information, timelesstruthtoday.org. There you'll find more on how knowing Christ will work a miracle of forgiveness in your life. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a home church, you're always invited to come worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us on Monday for a new series with part one of Living the Assured Life. I'm Matt Williams. Have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.